<laughs> Walkers and Mammals of the World, but only one of the volumes. Complete Dinosaur and the Dinosaur Edition. Together. Together. Ow! I don't, I don't know. Have we got an agenda? Do we? We should. We've got a lot of news for the world of news. I'm. I'm wondering if we should just have them listed because otherwise we're going to go back and forward. I've written it down. Okay. Okay. Paper. All right. Trust me. Paper. Yeah. Ye right. oldy dead tree stuff. Righto. Let's go then. Hello and welcome to episode thirty-two of 32. the world fa- of the world famous Tedgebods Worldy podcast. I'm Adrian Barbo. And I'm... Who's that? Famous actress. Oh, okay. Oh, I'm Sophia Loren. Who the hell's that? <laughs> Famous kid. actress! Kid, kid, kid. <laughs> um, in this episode, thrilling news from the world of tape ears. Oh, uh, uh, <laughs> yeah. And, um, uh, well, you know, we don't... This is the Tedgebodsology podcast. So yeah. It's a spin-off of a blog called Tedgebodsology, currently hosted at scientificamerican.com. And uh, it occurs to me often that I don't, you know, I don't blog frequently about... Frequently enough, I don't know, about Mesozoic animals, dinosaurs and pterosaurs. Do people come to Tedgebodsology for dinosaurs and pterosaurs? And do we talk about dinosaurs and pterosaurs and their Mesozoic ilk on the Tetsu podcast enough, or do we talk about them too much? And the reason why I'm saying this is because I'm thinking the things we mostly want to talk about right now concern dinosaurs and pterosaurs. So, listeners, let us know. More dinosaurs and pterosaurs or less dinosaurs and pterosaurs? What do you think? (laughs) See, I think you worry about taxonomic balance more than your average Joe, right? It's a bit like me worrying whether most of my dinosaurs face left or right. Yeah, Yeah, you know, no one cares, really. Well, well, As long as it's interesting. The left or right facing thing is a valid concern. <laughs> but but in the age of in the age of computer wizardry, it's irrelevant because it's there's not, it's not a flip valid switches. Con- it's not a it is. How so, how so? It is because because it it, Im- it implies psychological <laughs> psychological bias of the artist. <laughs> yeah. Left left facing animals are liberal and contrarian. Right facing animals are conservative and uh, bigoted. So. He says, flicking through his copy of Gregory Paul's Dinosaurs of Field Guide. Take that, take that, conservatives. <laughs> Did you know there's a typo, there's a mistake on the cover of this book? Um, no, I, I've got a, I've got the different cover. I don't have. Oh, you got cover. the one with the the one with the big tyrannosaur eating the little tyrannosaur. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. Because well, you know, so this this is quite for, for dino nerds. You'll get this. For other people, you won't. The ju- the the funny thing is about Greg Paul is. You know, rampant um, lumping, right? So all ceratopsians, all chasmosaurines are chasmosaurus or something, or all centrosaurians are centrosaurus, that kind of thing, or storette or whatever. Um, so the joke is on the cover of this, there's look, there's a big theropod there called Acrocanthosaurus, yep. Atokensis, and there's a little tiny theropod down the bottom there, and do you know what that one is? Acrocanthosaurus. Well, it's, it's also yeah. <laughs> it's also Acrocanthosaurus, and that's like that's that's, that's what the labels next to it says yes. anyway. So that's like a, a little and group. That is Coelophysis, right? It's Syntarsis or Coelophysis or whatever you want to call it. One of those things. Megapnosaurus. Yeah. Megapnosaurus. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> dinosaur people know what we're talking about. So anyway, 
How are we going to start the show, John? I forget, because oh. you won't let me write an agenda. F you. <laughs> F you. Yeah. Uh, what was it we had to... <laughs> 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 uh, well, well, I know there's the... I thought you had it written down on a piece of paper. I have got it written down. So, yeah. um... Um... Now, do you remember mentioned some time ago the side paper on a sidewinding anaconda? So, sidewinding is you know a specific locomotive adaptation of small snakes, other than those of like less than sixty centimeters long. Mm. But um, a paper there was a paper published in I think Journal of Herpetology about a month ago that reported sidewinding behavior in an anaconda. And uh, what? That's like quite hard to imagine in a snake longer than three meters or twice as long or whatever. Well, the video. Thanks to Owen Davies. Owen has pointed me to the video. And it's really amazing. I'm, I'm going to send you the link, actually. Because um, um, it's a snake of... Uh, wait for the person to come into shots so I can get an idea of a scale. It's not a tremendously big anaconda. It looks less than three meters long. Or approximately that length. But, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's sidewinding. That's, that's a big snake, though, isn't it? I mean, this is, this is just nuts. Yeah. Yeah. So, so like normally you see boas and pythons crawling along using what's called rectilinear uh, crawling, uh, rectilinear locomotion, which is like slow. They can't move quickly. But this this anaconda is moving quickly. So, um, uh, it's, it's on my it's on my Facebook feed for those who are buddies with me. And um, yeah, I'll, I'll I'll send you the link. It's it's pretty interesting. So I just wanted to mention that. So thank you, Owen, for sharing that video. Um, why were we talking about whale limbs in the last episode? Uh, we were talking about tyrannosaur uh, fall in reduction, and possible loss, and the we were comparing it to whale hind limb reduction and loss. Right, right. So, um, so I would have mentioned the idea that we know that hind limbs were retained in, um, like fully pelagic cetaceans like bacillosaurs and dorodontines or dorodontids, whatever you want. And also, apparently, in even early baleen whales, they still, like cetotheres, some cetotheres had hind limbs. So hind limbs were retained for a long time. Uh, and general thinking is that these are relictual remnants of evolution. And modern whales lack them, but modern whales still have pelvic girdles. Apart from the two or three kogia. Uh, whales, the dwarf and pygmy sperm whales, Kugia. Um They don't really have pelvic girdles. They've got kind of cartilaginous sheets in the same place. Now, conventional thinking would have it the 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 pelvis, the pelvic bones of whales are again, you know, useless relics. But turns out, not entirely true. They anchor penis muscles in at least some whales. And there is a new paper, uh, in at least some, that one of the, whichever gender has the penis, I don't know. <laughs> so, the male was. <laughs> Sorry, I'm just being stupid there. Hold on. Uh, that's because I'm trying to type at the same time. I'm trying to find the paper. Um, trawling through my internet history, never a good idea. Sexual selection targets cetacean. Hold on, it's loading. <laughs> Sexual selection targets cetacean pelvic bones by J.P. Dines and colleagues. Uh, I think this is in the journal Evolution. It's open access. Um, now, their basic argument 
is that we've got good reasons for thinking that the anatomy of genitals is sexually selected and the evolution of genitals occurs quite quickly um, in geological terms, keeping in step with uh, sexual selection pressure. And they say in this paper that the anatomy of some whales uh, have uh, substantial penises that are able to do quite impressive feats <laughs> of um, uh, sort of mobility and and such. And they're saying that in the ones that have got the the like uh, very large uh, genitals, then um, then those are the ones where they've got like a, a a big. There's a definite link between pelvis size and and uh, male genital size, and and so so they're saying that pelvic shape isn't just like the pelvis isn't just a relic it's actually fundamentally sexually selected so so uh the study provides evidence of sexual selection can affect internal anatomy that controls male genitalia and if you're wondering well why then do female whales have uh uh pelvic girdles presumably this is one of those intellectual developmental constraint things where evolutionary pressures that affect one sex um have a like basically have to affect the other one yeah. due to the fact that to a degree the developmental like, embryology of, of both sexes have to, have to be in some way similar because obviously sex is not determined until a certain point in the development of the embryo yeah. so uh, which is a really interesting thing because so that means that there's actually quite a few things in evolution where pressures that have affected the shapes of one sex end up affecting the other one and so male nipples male is a classic nipples, example. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And another one is the shape of our backs. Did you know the shape of the human back? Maybe, this, it has been argued, maybe a, uh, like, selected for uh, the carrying of, like, abdominal weight in the form of unborn babies. Hmm. So uh, lumbar, lumbar lordosis in humans, uh, it's been suggested, is a, yeah, that's not sexual selection, but... <laughs> Yes, that's not what I'm saying. Anyway, so there we go. Yeah, well, well, Pervis, that's part of FU. Uh, yeah, that's but <laughs> that went for much. That went on for much longer than I thought it would. Long rambling nonsense. <laughs> Sidewinding snakes, whale pelvies. Um, so that was it for follow up. That's it for follow up. Okay, let's go. World, new, no world from the <laughs> world of world news from the world of world. I don't know. <laughs> Oh my god. Um, news news corporation <laughs> Corporation News yeah. from the News Corporation. No, what was it? It's a, it's a, it's a Sim, Sim, Simpsons old timey like movie about uh, uh I've forgotten it, I can't remember it. It's quite good. Anyway, yeah. yeah. News from the world of news. We should need to design some little bits of music to yeah, go but with Then I things. have to edit them all in. <laughs> can't you like you know you know you know you know how um Radio people have got like a little button they press. And, yes, uh, that's a whole another level of sophistication that I Dingo don't have, and I the don't baby. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Um, you know the episode of Family Guy with Dingo and the baby. I'm sure I've mentioned that before. Uh, ah, ah! Um, news for the world of news. Um, there's so oh god get it together I'll just take a drink yeah. see if that makes things better <laughs> sorry I was out last night I drank a lot um, I started off by saying something about should we do more dinosaurs and pterosaurs because now we're going to talk about dinosaurs and pterosaurs right yes. that's, where we, that's where we're going with this so 
couple of things worthy of mention. Uh, sauropods. Sauropods, sauropods everywhere. Briefly, Dreadnoughtus, this giant titanosaur, published very recently. We are talking on the 12th of September, 2014. And um, there's a little bit of hoo-ha about exactly how big Dreadnoughtus is, but whatever, it's big. And it's not like the big thing. It's not really that... I'm personally not that fussed about how big it is, apart from the fact that it's big, because it's significant, because often... The big, the really big sauropods are <laughs> the biggest sauropod ever. Oh wow! Go to the paper. It's a single vertebra. Yeah. Yes, it's a very big vertebra. It might be one point four meters tall, or something. But that's all you got. You got like you know scrappy remains for these things. We spoke about this last time, didn't we? Giant sauropods. We did. We were talking yeah. about the broom sandstone tracks, right? Yeah, yeah. But Dreadnoughtus is represented by a lot of material, as in like they got like most of a tail, a substantial portion of the body. Only a bit of the neck, but there's a lot of this animal, and uh, um, that's that's all. That's all to, to dinosaur people. All very interesting, and also interesting. The there's been. I'm not going to talk about Mark Whitten because I spoke about him too much last time. Yeah, I'm not going to. I'm not going to say anything about the 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 debate about how it's been portrayed in paleo art because that's an interesting side um, thing. To those of you who are interested in this, you know, Google is your friend. So, Dreadnoughtus, right? You haven't done a Dreadnoughtus, have you? Because you've Google done a whole is not load. your friend. Is it? Is that what I said? You said Google is your friend. That's what I meant. I just want to remind people Google is not their friend. Uh, you know what I mean. It's Sometimes a psychopathic it's... Um, giant Each, corporation. Eater of, the eater of worlds. Yes, exactly. Fire of cities. <laughs> have, you heard about, have you heard about Googleville? <laughs> Googleville, yes. It, yeah, they've, yeah, it's going to be like... Um, uh, you know the, the. Have you seen the Matrix prequel cartoons? I know you don't do prequels. Here we are. Here, oh, here we are on prequels. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I went out of my way to see the Matrix prequel cartoons. <laughs> <There's these two laughs> and then I went out and I stabbed myself in the eye with a screwdriver because <laughs> that's just the way I roll. And then liberally applied sandpaper to <laughs> yeah. my nether regions. Um, <laughs> followed by a dousing with vinegar. Um, no, there's these two. There's these two cartoons. I think it's called The Dawn of the Revolution or something cheesy like that. And uh, and it explains how the robots in the future like end up like enslaving humanity. It's the whole backstory to the Matrix. It's exactly exactly the sort of stuff you want in a prequel. And um, there's a bit where the first the first robot city, I believe, is called Zero One, and uh, and humans try and destroy it, but it goes bad. And uh, and they make that that makes the robots really angry, and they make an e- and they make a bigger giant city that sort of takes over other cities or something. And uh, that's just that's just what I have in mind when I hear about Googleville. So so Google, the company, have bought a town. They've bought like, they've got their own like robot cars and everything, haven't they? And they've also purchased <laughs> I don't know Cyberdyne or something, the company that makes Big Dog and those other robots, walking robots. Yeah. <laughs> <Just> like, <laughs> Oh my god! Pretty soon they'll buy. What's the name of that company that does the flying like robo penguins and and? Um, oh yeah, yeah. Uh, Fimo. Um, yeah, I forget. John, you're taking us off on a strange tangent here. Yeah, Where I was we about to say, what were we talking about here? Dreadnoughtus. Google is your friend. Okay, so move on from dread. There's t- okay, so Dreadnoughtus is like you know that's a big dinosaur thing that's been in the news all over the news wires. I want to talk briefly about uh, Ikran Draco Avatar, this new pterosaur. Yeah. So, published by Wang and Rodriguez and Kellner and colleagues, 
and I don't have the paper in front of me, so I have no concept of where it was published. It was in a top-tier journal, like possibly Nature Communications. I'm going to go with Nature Communications. It was free, I think. <clears throat> As in open access. Um, now, this is a really interesting Cretaceous South American pterosaur with a, uh, a large su- semi-circular dentary crest. And those of you who know pterosaurs will be familiar with the idea that, you know, quite a few what we call ornithochiroid-type pterosaurs, have semicircular crests on the dentary to lower jaw and also the tip of the snout as well. And Icaran Draco only has a giant like lower jaw one, doesn't have one on the upper jaw. The Icaran are the also called the Banshees. They're the flying um, uh, dragon-esque monsters from uh, the movie Avatar. And the so that's why they went with Icaran Draco Avatar, because the shape of the big chinny jaw thing reminded them of what's present in the Icaran. Um, now, I have some problems with this, with this, with this paper, with the uh, some of the ideas explained therein. So again, this is this is the all old hat to anybody that knows pterosaurs, but that's going to be a I don't know a fairly small portion of our audience, maybe. Um, when people find keel-like structures or crest-like structures of any sort on the jaws of pterosaurs, there's this tradition whereby they say, ah, it was skim feeding. It was trawling its jaws or its snout through this water surface, like cutting it through the water somehow, and therefore, you know, using the jaws as a, as a way of capturing fish. Uh, based on the, well, I don't know, I, I think based mostly on the fact that, well, that's just what it looks like it was doing. Because yeah. Which living animals skim feed? Well, the birds, rinkops, the skimmers. And um, again, apologies to people who know pterosaurs because this has been done to death in the pterosaur literature. But pterosaurs, and I'm not going to mention Mark Whitten again. There should be a, the, the Keezy Nicklin drinking game, should definitely should have Mark Whitten. You mention Mark Whitten, you'd have to down a pint of vodka. Mm. Um, and m- mention Mike Keezy. Uh huh. <clears throat> um. Yeah, but the Rinkops, the skimmer, has got something like 35, you know, special anatomical things, like features of its jaw and neck and stuff, which are related to its skimming lifestyle. Skimming is tremendously inefficient. It's tremendously difficult lifestyle. You need to be ultra-specialized to do it. The skimmer, the Rinkops, the bird, has has this, like, whole bunch of weird features. And in the pterosaurs, where people say that they're skim feeders, none of those adaptations are present. They don't have any of the anatomical adaptations looking suitable for skim feeding. A paper by Humphreys et al. showed that uh, in, on energetic terms alone, skim feeding couldn't work in these pterosaurs. So why has Icarandraco been posited as a skimmer yet again? They say in the paper that it was maybe a facultative skimmer, kind of like part-time, half-assed, sort of doing a little bit of skimming but not really dedicated to the lifestyle. It sort of like flew down to the water, thought about it a little bit and like skimmed a little bit and then, you know, didn't skim a little bit. And that's how it caught its food. Um, yeah, I, I think this is problematic. It lacks the, the again the specialization of skim feeding. And importantly, at the back of this semicircular lower jaw crest, it's got this hook like process where th- they say that this anchored a large pouch like structure. So they say it's also not only is it a skim feeding pterosaur with a big dentary crest, it's also got a big sacky thing, like a pelican. Um but it's like oh, hold on. If you're saying that there's a big pouch that starts just behind the crest, if you if the crest is supposed to cut through the water, one of the things that you need to do as a skim feeder is you take you're removing water from the water, you're cutting through the meniscus, you're creating water like sp- spilling out somehow, splashing out t- to the surface. The water's got to be put back into the water. What you don't want is the water interacting with some tissue that just makes it a whole totally inefficient mess. 
That's kind of my supposition here. And yet they're saying that this water that's... Water's presumably being displaced sideways, maybe being displaced forwards and being displaced backwards as well. Well, the water that's being displaced backwards is now going to be interacting with the giant pouch this pterosaur's supposed to have. And my point is basically, you know, you have one or the other, you can't have both. That's <laughs> kind of sort <clears throat> So, um... I was a reviewer for this paper, and I, I did voice some objections, but, you know, well, the rest, as they say, is history. So, um, Yeah, it's really an odd notion that... Because if you look at um, skimmers, the birds, they don't have these um, long, well, tall, plate-like things to ease their beak through the water. They have... they. I mean, it's a relatively... I don't want to say shallow, there is a little bit of depth to it, but there's not <laughs> these great big semicircular things that, do, that just doesn't really help, you know? Mm. Um, so although it kind of looks like it make, makes it more streamlined from top to bottom, it's not, it, it doesn't really, it's not no. the way it works. No. It just increased drag, really. Um, yeah. So, um, yeah, <laughs> it just refuses to die, doesn't it? It does refuse to die. We did joke. This has been covered on Tetsu a couple of times, and we've joked about the idea of getting a T-shirt that says "Die, you skin-feeding <laughs> bastard, die." But it's it just—it's the hypothesis that it just will not die, and and I think it needs to. I really do. And so, so if you've got a giant crest on your lower jaw, and you probably aren't using it for skin feeding, then what is it for? Well, they do say in the paper they do they do. Um, they, they point to these papers published by myself and many other people on the possible use of these crests as display structures in sociosexual display of some kind. They do say that's a possibility. But I think at some point they say, however, this isn't likely because since when would an animal grow a display structure on its lower jaw and not have it on the other jaw? <laughs> Which, so uh, in the review I said, hmm, uh, well... Have you heard frigate birds, you know, which famously have a giant inflatable balloon-like thing going on on the lower jaw? What about, like, anoles? Uh, uh, you know, these lizards that have a giant erectile fan-shaped thing that's specific to the, uniquely found on the lower jaw, nowhere else in the body. And then there are chameleons with giant inflatable dewlaps. And I'm sure, you know, if we think about this hard enough, there's many other examples as well. Animals that have display structures specifically just on the lower jaw and you could argue that human males yes you think the you beard could, is yes. a is a sexual display organ yeah I yeah mean, yeah anyway go well ahead. yeah we've there's we this we, we've got good re i think i i referred to this in the in that tezu article humans among the primates on the sexual selection possibly shaping the proportions of the human face and and male facial hair um and also like pterosaurs are kind of like well if you imagine looking at a pterosaur you're going to be doing this aren't you <laughs> you're going to be looking up <laughs> looking at it up. because because it flies so don't you think it might actually be quite a sensible idea for an animal to evolve a display structure somewhere on its like lower jaw as well so well the, I, yeah I, I don't think it even needs a robust rebuttal there does it it's just obviously wrong um, it's not an argument. L on the lower jaw. <laughs> it's, it's a non sequitur. It makes no sense. Exactly. Um, so, so it, yeah, it's a cool paper. It's a cool animal. I'm happy to see it published, but I'm not happy to see what I consider. Well, oh, I don't know. You, you, it's always difficult. You've got to allow people to. I don't want to say say what they like, but you've got to allow people the freedom to explore their own favoured hypotheses. But then, if you like, if I think a hypothesis is 
dubious or questionable, does that mean that I should tell people that they can't publish it or that they need to test it further or do more work on it or think about it? Because, you know... Well, I think that, yeah, in this case, I think make your argument better. Don't just say this, right? It's sort yeah. of a, you've got to come up with more evidence, more supporting statements. And that's well, the yeah. thing, I think, if you're going to say this in a paper in Nature. Um, scientific reports. <coughs> um, yeah, it's interesting. <laughs> yes. And they don't talk about the... Uh, do they? Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, I've only read it once and relatively quickly, but they don't talk very much about the function in terms of stress on the lower jaw, um, which has been talked about with uh, similar structures in yeah. other, other pterosaurs, which I think was uh, more convincing for... Well, more convincing. was seemed relative a relatively strong hypothesis that some of these structures did have um a functional god I'm being really slow You're functional functional my... reasons for being there so the little humps and crests on Ananguara for example um mm. reduced uh, loads on the tips of the jaws if they were plucking fish out of the water for example yeah fast snacks uh, yeah. work um he, he who we do not mention. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, yes, I, I can't. I can't remember if that. I don't remember if that's mentioned in the paper. I don't. I don't think it is. But I don't um, think it is. Which is interesting because I thought that was that was a much stronger hypothesis than um, a f- stronger functional hypothesis than streamlining for skimming. Mm, mm. Um, and so it's kind of interesting that it's not. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah, I don't want to say anymore because I don't want to yeah. be too mean to the author's yeah. concern. And there's clearly a. Um, sexual selection component going on anyway, I think that they're... It's way too big on this thing to be anything else. There's mm. no way that's a functional yeah. size. Yes. So, so Ikran Draco Avatar, it's quite, it's quite a cool name, and it's a very cool animal. Uh, but as always with these papers, the interpretation is problematic. Um, so, now we come to dinosaurs. Mm. Right? And we're... At, again, oh, sorry, just did Dreadnoughts, of course. Spinosaurus. Spinosaurus, you can't move for Spinosaurus right now. Spinosaurus was like trending on, think apparently things trend on Facebook now. It's not just Twitter that trends, it's Facebook as well, allegedly. Um, so there's this new paper by Nizar Ibrahim, uh, who I know well, I've done fieldwork with him, uh, and a whole bunch of colleagues, obviously Paul Serino is involved, on New Look Spinosaurus. So what they're saying is they've got a whole bunch of new material which demonstrates that Spinosaurus had weird-ass proportions. It had, um, like, a far smaller pelvis than, than previously imagined, based on the anatomy of other non-bird theropods, far shorter hind limbs, and also uh, a functionally four-toed foot. So where the first toe, the one on the inside, equivalent to our big toe, they're saying that's longer than is normal in theropods, probably in contact with the ground. They say the foot claws are, like, relatively flat-bottomed. They're saying that it's like a, you know, a foot that's sort of adapted for walking on soft ground and maybe for paddling as well. And they're also saying the proportions of this animal, they're saying Spinosaurus has built something like a dashend mm-hmm. and, uh, and its forelimbs are about, they're saying its forelimbs are about as long as its hind limbs, so that if it was to walk on land, it would kind of have to support its weight on its uh, hands. So 
this brilliant David Bonner Donner um, uh, uh, life restoration shows it as like a as a quadruped supporting it like knuckle walking. Mm. Okay, so so they're saying aquatic Spinosaurus, new look for Spinosaurus, and uh, and it all it's very exciting stuff, and it's very interesting, and it basically is sort of the last. It's like dominoes have been falling, and these are the last of dominoes to fall. People have been, you know, they're starting out by saying, "Hey, Spinosaurus doesn't look like regular ass theropods. It's like a it's a crocodile snouted theropod, so maybe it's a fishing one." And said, "Oh, maybe it stands at the edge of the water and reaches in, you know, reaches into the water." Then they said, "Oh, it's got these sensory adaptations, which indicate, you know, the tip of the snout is very sensitive and it's able to detect vibrations and stuff in the water." Then people start saying, "Oh, its oxygen isotope ratios of its teeth indicate that it's spending a lot of time in the water." Uh, maybe it's like amphibious, and um, maybe it's like doing a lot of swimming. And now, finally, the last—I'm sure the analogy with dominoes doesn't work, but whatever. The, the last <laughs> thing is: oh, it's not just—it's not just standing at the edge of the water and fishing. It's not just wading. It's not just like lounging around water a little bit. It's like almost fully aquatic, and so much so that it looks stupid on land. It's like it's strongly adapted for life in the water. So that's what they're saying. Um, now, <laughs> this is very similar to the other to our last one, yes, isn't it? Well, the Ikran Draco one. Yeah, well, we're now well, going to go very to interesting, but <laughs> yeah, but some, there does seem to be some serious problems here. Some serious problems. Now, the idea of fully aquatic spinosaurs is not new. It was published in, I think, 1992 by Robert Backer and buddies in a paper in that well-known August journal, Hunteria. And, and there's just this throwaway line where they say that um, they, I mean, I'm sure it was Bakker wrote it, they say that Spinosaurus and maybe Carcharodontosaurus and uh, Bahariosaurus and other, others of those North African cenomanian uh, uh, ish age dinosaurs, they so maybe they're like theropod dinosaur equivalents of primitive whales and seals and they're like fully aquatic. And so, so I expected that to be cited. Uh, just just purely out the sake of fairness i, I, I don't, don't think it is um then that but that's that's kind of like a you know a, a nerdy aside don't worry but that's not too important um do these bones all come from the same animal the same place the same species oh, i should also say they they show that these bones they lack a medullary cavity within the bone so so spinosaurus seems to have relatively like solid comparatively heavy bones which is what you'd expect in that in that in, in an aquatic or amphibious tetrapod um they also say some cool stuff about the sail which i'm really happy with because they say that the surface bone texture indicates tight fitting of the skin and not really the idea of like humps and stuff that have been entertained uh, and they also talk about some stuff about the the sail being like probably a display structure they don't discuss the thermoregulatory thing which i always thought was a bit dumb anyway um but it's like do these animals all come from the same place, the same kind of animal? There's kind of problems. It's like not really, as I've already said to you, off the record, <laughs> there's reasons for thinking that these bones don't all, they aren't as associated as they probably should be for us to be confident that they, are we really sure they all come from Spinosaurus? They aren't from the same, they certainly don't come from the same individuals. Yeah. And um, they seem to be scaled wrong as well. So this has... Already, sorry, were you going to say something then? Or you just no, 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 go ahead. I've got something to say on the scaling, but yeah, go ahead. Rec- recreationally sighing there. Um, 
the did you know dogs and cats and cows sigh out of frustration? Yes. Yeah. Um. Yeah. The scaling. So. So. I didn't know cows did it, but I knew dogs. Yeah, did cows sigh. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, we had a cat that used to sigh as well. <sighs> like that. Yeah. Went as a sign of frustration. Interesting. <laughs> um. There's quite a few people have discussed this. I would say Scott Hartman is your best person to go to. Scott Hartman is findable at skeletaldrawing.com. Yep. His article is called, Is it something fishy about Spinosaurus? Yeah, there's something fishy about Spinosaurus. So if you look at the measurements provided by these authors, the measurements they provide don't match the reconstruction in the paper. So it looks like, okay, back of the envelope ballpark stuff, it looks like they have the pelvis and the hind limb undersized by about... I'm going to say seventy percent. I think it's something like that. They've uh, made it. It's not. No, no. Sorry, it's twenty-seven. It's yes, yes. So they've made it seventy percent of what size it should be. Yeah. yeah. Okay. It's not seventy so, percent so, too small, which would be sorry. That's drastic. Yes. I'm not sure. That's I'm not sure what I said, but that's not what I meant. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they've got it. They've got it small by about a thirdish. Yeah. They've shrunk it a little bit too much, which means that if you I haven't done this. I'm not about to sit down and produce a full skeletal reconstruction. Who do you think I am, David Peters? But Knock, who could knock up a skeletal in an hour? But yeah, um, <laughs> but, but um, uh, the um, if you imagine it, if you imagine so it with Scott the correct- has done, Scott has done it. Has he? Yes, he's right, taken the original skeletal from the paper and just scaled up the hind limbs to what to match the measurement data. Right, and it's still an odd-looking theropod, yeah. but it's it still not- looks stupid, but not as stupid. Yeah. So this idea, they actually say in the paper that it must have been. I do have the paper in front of me. So I never, I never do these things with the stuff right there. There's yeah, somewhere. It does say, it does say it, it has, it's an obligate. Yeah, uh, they quadruped. say it must have been a quadruped. And it's like, no, I don't think so. It's like, if you imagine it with these new proportions, first of all, there are no weight supporting adaptations in the hands or the forelimb or the shoulder. Um, I reckon, and this, I've said this in connection with sauropods as well, that, some of these animals, some of these like low-slung theropods and maybe some sauropods as well, uh, can do what pangolins can, which is that they're they're like they're like, they're like walking. Their the, the body and their tail is parallel to the ground, and their forelimbs are literally centimeters off the ground. So much so that pangolins you can't you can't see the pang- if, if you imagine <laughs> in the bottom of the screen there, imagine that's the ground. Yeah. So they walk like that. I've seen and this, I, so you don't need to demonstrate I, this to me. You need to demonstrate it in words yeah. to listeners. <laughs> yeah. Because um, the, the back end of a dinosaur, the back end of big-tailed dinosaurs, theropods and sauropods and others, that we, we have good reason to think their back ends were extremely heavy because people have previously underestimated the amount of like cordofemoral musculature they've got all the muscles associated with the thigh and the hips and it's like there's the sorry the thigh and the tail and the hips and so there's there's all that musculature which weighs out which counterbalances the relatively lightweight you know the the thorax and the neck and the head they're not really that heavy because there's like so much giant air sacs and everything in there relatively lightly muscled skulls and necks are anyway um so i think i i think this is this is dangerous because this is like just intuitive. But my thinking is that if you imagine these new proportions, these corrected proportions, no, Spinosaurus is not an obligate quadruped at all. It's it's a stupid looking dinosaur 
with four limbs very close to the ground, but I, I don't think there's a good reason to think yeah. that. So in the paper, they argue that the centre of mass right, is so far forward that even with the femur pointed straight forward, you can only just get the foot underneath it, right? And you can't do a retraction stroke while walking. Mm-hmm. Because the centre of mass is pretty much at the extreme front end of... So basically, they have to stand with its, with its feet as far forward as it could possibly reach to get its feet under its centre of mass. So it's not just a looks thing, right? It's not just that it would look silly. It would literally plough into the ground. Unless it stood like a cormorant or a penguin. Unless it stood with the yeah. upright yeah. body. But you have to do you have to do that pretty extremely to make that work. I think you know. Well, yeah, you'd have to have a vertical. Vertical, yeah. Mm. Um, with the larger forelimbs that Scott Hartman's put on here, you can get the feet under there more easily. It still looks like a bit of a problem because it is quite long. The trunk does seem to be very long, even with the corrected proportions. It's got a very very long body. Well, there's also you put the heavier tail on there. Yeah, I can I can see it being able to get around like a pangolin. I I agree. But if you went with the proportions they have in the paper, mm. then, yeah, that that thing can't walk on two legs. It would need to bump along yeah. at least. And their pro- well, their proportions might be completely wrong as well because there's been all this debate about where the uh, tall spined vertebrae go. Mm. Uh, you will probably know from reconstructions produced by the Headenmeister and. Uh, Andrea Cow, uh, that uh, at least one of the tall spine vertebrae is possibly, I think, a proximal caudal vertebra, mm. which, if true, means that the sail is not restricted to the dorsal region, but like extends onto the tail as well. So, yeah. Um, although I would be very surprised if the sail made a significant difference to its mass. Mm-hmm. Um, no, I, yeah, that's true. But so I, you know. Um, yeah, whatever. It's it's an odd theropod. It's very odd. What I would say is that if it was sort of doing... It does look like it would be walking in an odd manner for a large theropod. It's certainly not getting around like a... I think, I think the pangolin thing is a good example. And it wouldn't surprise me if it did touch its knuckles on the ground every now and again. Give itself a bit of an extra bump. Yeah, yeah. Because we, we do have theropod... Um, we've talked about this before, haven't we? I can't we remember have. whether we both agreed yeah. that this was, you know, theropods did occasionally rest on their knuckles. Um, yeah, when they, but when they were squatting down with their, like, you know, with yeah. their But if we're not, you know, it's got fairly robust limbs there. I'm not saying that <laughs> they do have adaptations for um, walking on four limbs, but it, yeah, you know, if you're just touching to correct some balance issues rather than actually, you know, full-on weight-bearing, then you might not mm. get... Um, strong adaptations at all especially if there's yeah. selective pressure for other things which there clearly is you know they're clearly using these limbs for f- fishing or something right mm. yeah it's very interesting I mean it's yeah. such an odd looking theropod no matter which way you uh, <laughs> so yeah <laughs> move I, I things think, around I think this is I think this is this is exciting this is a, a very interesting paper I think I think the take home basically is that yeah there's a new look for Spinosaurus it's it's weirder than we've thought before but you know, but there are some yeah, like careful. questions. Yeah. Questions about the association of material, questions about the 
particular proportions supported in this in this paper because because even this reconstruction the skeletal reconstruction they show which is color coded mm. that sh- the the color coding shows I think it's in the, I'm not looking at the one in the supplementary material there's one that's got like yellow bones and green bones and red bones it shows that different bits come from totally different places and some of those sorry from totally different specimens and stuff mm. and some of those specimens have at times been suggested to not be spinosaurus at all like the tail's been suggested to be from an ornithischian and uh, the neck, lots of controversies about the neck vertebrae and stuff. So, yeah, but mm. you know that a lot of these things. There's more to the argument that it was aquatic than just yeah. proportions yeah, yeah, and yeah, stuff yeah, in the yeah, paper. Yeah. And I think yeah. a lot of those look fairly solid yeah. to me. Oh yes, so so yeah, so so I'll reiterate. I'm saying the basic thing they're coming up with here, I think, is 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 good. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so yeah, new look Spinosaurus. That's it's it's pretty awesome, and I'm not surprised that people have been cock a hoop over this like the amount of interest it's generated so finally all those artistic reconstructions that have been appearing online can be ooh, I don't know all this spec- is it like this Dinochirus and Spinosaurus all this speculation over recent months can be put to bed safely <laughs> Well, sort of, except some people are going to go with the proportions that are shown in the paper, other yep. people are going to buy, and then there's all the shifting around of the vertebra, so the shape of the sail. Yeah. None of this is put to bed yet. Oh, in terms of just raw looks, Spinosaurus <laughs> is still sort of up in the air, isn't it? Which is really annoying. Yep, okay, right. Right, okay. <laughs> right uh, now, there's some other important news which doesn't concern dinosaurs, pterosaurs. Do you know what it's about? Yay! What? <laughs> <laughs> There's a new piece of tape here. Oh, no. So, I'm Not sure we mentioned one. this several several episodes ago. It's Episode 13, probably. Shot by Tessie Ro- Roosevelt. Uh, are we going to do the thing about books now? Books, yeah. Which one first? Uh, that one, Beasts of Antiquity. So, today, here at Tetsu Towers, I received a hard copy made of paper of... Beasts of Antiquity, Stem Birds in the Solnhoven Limestone by Matthew P. <laughs> Martin Yuk. <laughs> Martin Nyack. Martin Nyack. And uh, it's an attractive, circa 100-page, beautifully illustrated book published by Matthew Martin Yuk. Um, and it's really good. And if you like pterosaurs and dinosaurs, you must buy it. Because uh, uh, Matt's previous book is... Uh, What's it called? Just get it out of one of the piles here. A Field Guide to Mesozoic Birds and Other Winged Dinosaurs, which people should also buy if they're interested in Mesozoic dinosaurs, including birds. Um, yeah. yeah. Uh, so, so, so some people have you know, not been too happy about the fact that he's titled it Stem Birds in the Southern Life and Limestone. For those of you that don't know, uh, within a group of animals like birds, the living ones belong to a clade that we call crown birds. So the crown is the, the clade that includes all the descendants, the most recent common ancestor of living species. But then there's like a whole bunch of ones that are generally included within that group. You know, we call them birds, but they're outside the crown. And if there is a crown, the ones that are outside the crown are the stem taxa. So there are stem birds, but birds in the living fauna are the sister taxon, sister group to crocodiliforms, which obviously are extant. So there's crown crocodiliforms there's a whole lot of stem crocodiliforms but if you go back to the common ancestor which would be the crown archosaur common ancestor because we're talking about crown archosauria the clade that includes living crocodiliforms and living birds 
all the members of the croc lineage, going back to that common ancestor, are outside the croc crown, are stem crocs. And all the members of the bird branch that go back to that common ancestor that are outside the bird crown are stem birds. Now, this means that lots of animals on the bird branch aren't anything to do with birds. So all the dinosaur type things, those are all stem birds. And then all the things like pterosaurs and uh, early dinosauromorphs, those are all stem birds as well. So technically his usage does that was that was that a clear under it's very hard to explain these well, things i already around. know what it is so yeah it sounded clear to me but often these things you you try to explain these to people that, that aren't already familiar with it and it's it, yeah yeah so it for those listeners picture, but yeah yeah for those listeners who didn't get that here is a diagram <laughs> yeah a diagram yeah that's very nice um <laughs> <laughs> um so technically he's absolutely correct in calling referring to pterosaurs and such as stem birds that's absolutely correct but in terms of how useful and informative that's going to be, uh, that's open for debate. And some people would say, why did you call it that when you could have called it? I think what's wrong here is that um, the way English works is stem birds implies that these things are birds in English. When people hear that, they hear it's some sort of bird. Ah, yes. And I think this is what's... But in jargon terms, that's not what it means. Mm. So I think it's one of these confusing things where jargon is confusing normal English usage and uh, yeah. to give the wrong impression. Um, on the other hand, this book, as we've sort of discussed, seems to be aimed at people who um, know a lot about this sort of thing. So um, I haven't read it yet. Mm. Um, but, you know, so we know this, and it, well, it, it, for people like us, that was an interesting um, title, right? It's like, oh yeah, okay, yeah, I guess all these things are stem birds. Um, and it does encompass all the things in this in this book. That is what they are. Mm. Um, so, yeah, uh, I don't know, it's kind of interesting. So, yep. if you want nice things which have uh, <laughs> have titles like stem birds, which is rather confusing but does make you think, then yeah, you should buy the book. Yes, well, as John, uh, yeah, buy the book. I, I, I would endorse that. Um, it's not very expensive, is it? I don't see a price here because uh, hold on, there's a little receipt thing. Well, it was eight pounds on the iBook store, so the um, e-book is very reasonable. Yeah, um, and... I don't know what the paper book will is, but yeah. Mm. So it's a combination of like a substantial amount of text, specimen photographs of actual real fossils, um, Matt's lovely uh, life reconstructions, and um, some historical images of like localities and people involved and everything. So, and uh, John and I have already spoken about this. There's, I, I think that we should absolutely. This is a thing that's easier in the digital age and self-publishing, but we should definitely endorse the idea that there should be more specialised books on like small you know, um, special interest groups of organisms. And again, I'll, I'll, I think I didn't say this on the podcast, did I? I said, I said this beforehand, but, um, the, the thing that Greg Paul says in predatory dinosaurs, of the world, probably the first book that's about dinosaurs, but isn't about all dinosaurs. Mm. So it takes someone to point out, it's like, what's wrong with the idea that, you know, you do a dinosaur book. It doesn't have to be about all dinosaurs. It can be about some of them. You know, that's the case for every single other, bit of knowledge you know there's there's books on world war ii fighter planes and parrots of the world and frogs of australia why can't there be a book on 
pterosaurs of Germany, or 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 in this case, pterosaurs and dinosaurs of the specifically of the Solnhofen limestone. So, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I like I like it. Yeah. Also, yeah, I've got to say the pictures and Matt's arm pictures are really nice, and he does things like reconstructing several um, Growth life stage stages and stuff. and stuff. And yeah, that's really it's all really good. Yeah, yeah. So. So there you go. That's a bit of a plug for that, and I'm sure I'll mention it on Tetsu and stuff. I've already tweeted about it today. And now we come to that. The books never sound at all heavy when you do that, do they? No, no they don't. I'll try it. I'll try it with Walker's Mammals of the World, Volume <laughs> Two. How's that? No, it sounded <sighs> slappy and pathetic. Okay, I'll try it with <laughs> the Complete Dinosaur Second Edition, edited by Brett Sermon, Holtz, and Farlow. Yeah. Yeah, pretty big. Uh, yeah, sort of Come on. splatty. Yeah, no, didn't. Sound what about impressive. on the floor? Drop it on the floor. That sounded a bit better. Okay. <laughs> versus versus Walker's Mammals of the World Volume Two. No, slappy. Uh, Pathetic. No. I don't think you're going to find a book big, <laughs> big enough. <laughs> bear with me. Bear with me. Um, where's okay? Okay. Uh, the Dinosauria. Second edition, yes. only six hundred and no eight hundred and fifty sixty pages. Okay, slap, slap. Ah, oh. may as well have been like three pages long. See, I think there's there's a technical limitation here, Darren. There's there's others that I can they're out of reach. Yeah, I don't, big, the of, I don't think it's the size of I don't think it's the size of the book. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, okay. Okay, can we right. can we talk about no, that? No, 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 hold on. One more thing, one more thing. <laughs> like, okay, so Walker's Mammals of the World, but only one of the volumes. Yeah. Complete Dinosaur <laughs> and the Dinosaur Second Edition. Yeah, all together. 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 Ow! <laughs> <laughs> well, it was an impressive ow, but it just sounded like a slap. <laughs> it bounced up and hit my leg. Uh, <laughs> okay, okay, so what are we going to talk about now? Oh, yes. Right. <laughs> so... <laughs> this is responsible. Dean Lomax is responsible for this, uh, for the dropping of the books. So, uh, briefly, Dinosaurs of the British Isles by Dean Lomax and Nobumuchi Tamura, formerly known as Arthur Weasley. Oh. Yeah, which go. is, uh, <laughs> I, think, I think that's right. Um, Arthur Weasley is I a, always I, assumed that was his real name. I didn't get the so Harry did Potter reference. So, so did I. And I, I used some of his illustrations in a book, because they're creative comments, obviously. And, uh, and an editor said to me, you do realise this is a pseudonym? And I said, well, what's, what's wrong with the, the name? The pseudonym is Arthur Weasley. That sounds Arthur like Weasley. Remote. Yeah, so, so Nobu or Nobumuchi Tamura. So this is like a really attractively packaged... 415-page book published by Siri Scientific Press. I think it looks great. And um, it was... It has some... I, I don't exactly know how he managed to pull off this book because it includes... I don't know how many, but it looks like hundreds of really good specimen photographs uh, produced professionally... By um, like most of the specimens, most British dinosaurs are obviously in the Natural History Museum in London, and they've obviously the photographs have been produced by the photographic department there. So I'll have to ask Dean. I should say that we do both know Dean in 
personal social context um i i i'm curious as to how he you know what sort of deal he made in terms of like how they let him use these illustrations in a in a book which is obviously a commercial book that's being sold for money um <laughs> a commercial so <laughs> book being sold for money yes, <laughs> to use the technical term um yeah and it's like quite a lot of information i mean uh this, I think it's kind of a shame that references are missing from the text, but on the other hand, that would add like another 30 pages to the thing. It would also make the text much more cluttered. Uh, it seems to include like basic information. Quite a lot of discussion. I mean, there's like a whole page of text there on uh, Iguanodon. Um, but yeah, it's just that the volume of illustrations is just really impressive, which makes it a really nice thing to... Yeah, a great especially thing to specimen look. photos, which are often quite difficult to get a hold of, especially in such in one place. Um, the original ter- Encyclopedia of Pterosaurs by Wellenhofer was also like heavy in specimen photos, which is why I still keep going back to it. I mean, obviously, a lot of the other stuff is outdated, but, yeah. So that's quite an achievement. I'm just, It's quite amazing how he got all that done. Yeah. And the life reconstructions, they range from, I would say, uh, there's some that are pretty poor, to others that are really good. Um, and you got the full gamut. So, yeah, there's there's some that aren't that good that look like they were knocked up, you know, speedily for Wikipedia entries, which I, I think they probably were. But then, and some of them you've got them right next to high fidelity skeletal reconstructions by people like Greg Paul, Scott Hartman, and Jamie Hedden. <laughs> and um, yeah, so uh, overall, you know, I think well done, Dean. It's a really impressive thing. Um. Yeah, it is an impressive yeah. book. Yeah, yeah, and it's. I, I've I've been planning to do a book on British dinosaurs for for a long time, and and put a lot of work into it a few years ago. But but what, as soon as you get bogged down in, oh, okay, I can tell you, recommended retail price is thirty three pounds. Please provide link to our website in online reviews. Well, this is an online review, so Siri Scientific Press is www.siriscientificpress.co.uk. There's a, this is a specialist publisher in entomology and paleontology. Uh, I think I, I was given a book on theirs about trilobites. Of course, I gave it away. But, <laughs> <laughs> but um, <laughs> too many legs. Too- <laughs> yeah. Okay. And unless there's anything else you wanted to add, uh, no, I think that's... okay. So right. now we come to the section of the show. Cash for questions. Cash for questions. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Thank you to the people who send us cash for questions. Yes, indeed. We do appreciate your cash for questions. Have we received any new ones since yesterday? Uh, We haven't received any new ones since yesterday. We've still got two. Okay, so. This is from a nonny mouse. Ah, her. Um, watching the documentary, uh, documentary is in inverted commas, about, no, not inverted commas, that's confusing, isn't it? Quotation marks, anyway, that's more precise. I'm find about North American terror birds. I know nothing about terror birds. What scientific evidence is there that they were, t- that terror birds were predators as opposed to scavengers? Thanks. Prefer to be anonymous. Uh, <laughs> why? Uh, whatever. Yeah, that's, that's your choice. Um, well, I have noticed a pattern in the people that are anonymous. They... Ah, I know what it is and I'm not going to say. 
Yes, I've noticed it as well. Anyway, go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> um, so thank you for your question. Okay, pterosaur. Um, okay, start again. Start again. Okay, edit that in post. Terror birds. Terror birds. Properly termed forest rakids or forest rakoids, depending on blah 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 blah. blah. Um, this group of like flightless mm, forest uh, ranger former morphs. <laughs> Small, small ones. Uh, they've got a fossil record that goes from like, uh, like something like fifty million years ago, from the Paleocene or Eocene, uh, all the way up to the Pleistocene. With the age of the youngest ones being controversial, some, the youngest ones are supposed to be from, uh, well, Texas. Uh, and originally, they were published as being like super recent, like sometime within, ooh, sometime within some since the mid. No, since the late Pleistocene, possibly overlapping the Holocene, but then they were redated and proved to be much older. So, uh, so no, they probably never did meet people, which was an idea entertained at one point. The, they're all flightless, but the small ones are like similar in size to like secretary birds or seriamas, and the big ones, like Kellen Ken is a famous giant one, are truly gargantuan, like heads, uh, I don't know, like 40, 50 centimetres long, maybe even a bit bigger. And the whole animal, you're talking about it being like two and a bit meters. I should have done some research to get all this stuff <laughs> right. But I would uh, add, a, add a guess based on the reconstructions of Kellen Ken that put it close to next to a human silhouette. That that makes it look like it's a, like 2.3 meters tall or something. And a big bird of that size is normally estimated to be something like anywhere between... Uh, ostriches are like 150, 200 kilos, around about, around about that. But then if it's more massive, it's going to be like 200, 300 kilos. And the, the biggest birds, like the Mirrorungs, Dromonithids, they're meant to be, and elephant birds, some estimates put them at 400 to 500 kilos. So I just looked this up. 71 centimetres is the um, length of the skull. Okay, for Kellenken. Yeah, Kellenken, yeah. Cool. So, big, hooked bills. Um, well, as always with these animals, as is always the case, if you actually want to know specific stuff about you know, ecology and life behavior and biology, it's like we have pretty much zero evidence of any kind. It's, it's uh, kind of just coming up with what you think is most likely based on inferred function. And um, so, so if, if animals have got like big, sharp claws on their feet, as forest records have, um, if they've got like strongly recurved tips to their their uh, rostrum then put those together you're talking about like a, a predator and if they don't have like big flattened platform like edges to the jaws if they've got like relatively narrow edges to the jaws that was also consistent with with predation rather than uh, um like like buying fruit or you know some uh, some plant material which which because because obviously you know birds can can have like a strongly hooked bill and strongly hooked claws and be frugivores mm. or herbivores as parrots being an obvious example and some raptors as well like the um the palm nut vulture so, but so we infer based on their anatomy that the terror birds the forest rakids were um yeah, were, 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 were predatory and if you want to talk about like were they scavenging well as as always with big predatory flightless uh, animals um, there's the, the normal arguments about like the energetics and the availability of food it's like yeah if one of these animals comes across a carcass and if it can exploit that carcass if it can like deter other predators or or just you know it's, it's lucky enough for, to find something that's unguarded then 
we can be pretty confident that it will exploit that because every meat-eating animal does. There aren't any meat-eating animals that don't eat carrion. So even, I've said this on Tezu quite a few times, it's, uh, the literature would have it that cheetahs, snakes, and frogs and toads don't eat carrion. But that turns out to be like too much of a generalization. And in fact, even those specialized non-carrion eaters do eat carrion. So there's now loads of cases of like snakes peeling roadkill toads off the road and eating, you know, the thing, dead things they found because they still identify as something edible. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, these things will be scavengers. But wh- whether they were like specialized or dedicated scavengers, it's like, no, probably because you can't be a terrestrial uh, flightless animal and be a dedicated scavenger because you can't cover enough distance to find enough exploitable carcass uh, carrion. Um, and they look like they look like animals that are active predators. You know, they're virtually all of them are cursorial, incredibly slender, elongate limbs, indicating that they're running and almost certainly able to outrun, um, you know, uh, contemporaneous animals of many kinds. And then there's, I suppose it's also worth saying that you know because the biggest forest rakids are big, as I've said, like you know heights of over two meters. Big animals, people tend to assume they're super predators, and they think of them tackling things of similar size to themselves or even or even larger. So, you know, we get this with Mesozoic dinosaurs a lot. Whenever anyone talks about Velociraptor or Deinonychus, they talk about it taking on, you know, people talk about Velociraptor taking on ankylosaurs and, and, and duckbird dinosaurs. Whereas in actual fact, if you look at what, look at what most predators do, tend to go for lazy, easy things to eat. So you generally eat the, the abundant small things that are easy to find, and easy, much more easier to capture and kill and process. So I would guess that forest rakids, and obviously many other people have said this before me, um, they're probably wandering around in grasslands and woodlands, like eating, you know, little like lizard-like reptiles and uh, rodents and uh, small marsupials and you know wh- whatever's. I, I bet you the bulk of their diet is made up of things smaller than rabbits. Say, mm. but that doesn't mean they. Though, yeah, but there's not. A, is there a big selective pressure to get like a seventy long, centimeter long head? Then I don't know. They seem over. It seems like a bit of overkill. If you're, I, I don't deny that the majority of their diet is probably relatively small things. Yeah, I, I'm not saying like big things, but at least you know, small deer, that sort of stuff. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but what if there's? But what if there's like if you're in an environment that's got an unbelievable unexploited abundance of small things, smaller than rabbit-sized things. Well, I, I would some... expect like you'd end up sort of tall so you can see stuff, but not maybe not so robust. And this huge big beak they've got, you know. It's more stork-like than eagle-like well, skull. Like. Yeah, or Ashdarkard-like, yeah. Yeah, well, so... I don't know. Obviously, we've got no... I don't know this. Yes. No. <laughs> yeah. So, they, well, yeah. They so do I, seem I would... to be unusual... Uh, they're looking at their skulls. They're they're big, strong, sort of powerful organs. You know, uh, mm. they, they look like overkill for just small prey. Yeah, I don't know. yeah. So I would I would predict that that yeah, small prey was something that they ate a lot. But yeah, you're you're right. Maybe they are uh, routinely tackling and killing somewhat bigger things, but not things that are similar in size to themselves or even half the size of themselves. So. Um, yeah, they've got a problem there that um, it's it's hard to imagine their kill strategy with something that's too big and can you know struggle around and 
yeah, um, yeah. Now there's their slender running limbs and things like this. You know, it just well, seems their their limbs. There's um, there's one in particular called Mesembryonis, and um, it's got unusually thick leg bones compared to what you would predict for a bird of that size. Mm. And there's there's two possible answers have been suggested. One is that it was this in this in this enabled it to like endure a tremendous amount of like stress and strain in the leg bones and it was super fast and based on the the workers concerned they found a correlation between leg bone thickness and like the amount of compression in the leg bones from running which allows you to work out an approximate running speed and based on the leg thickness, they th- they thought they could run on like two hundred miles an hour or something. <laughs> it was like faster than a cheetah. It was yeah. it was it was okay. Cheetahs, uh, cheetahs are meant to have top speed of sixty miles per hour. How good is your conversion rate to kilometers per hour? Uh, so that's so like about a hundred. All right, okay, about hundred kilometers an hour. And it's like, well, okay, it's not impossible. It could be super super fast. <laughs> or or oh. could it be that there's also birds that have really thick leg bones because they kick the crap out of things. They kick yeah. the crap out of little animals. They stamp them to death. Like secretary birds, you know, patrol the savannas, looking down for snakes and rodents and big insects, and they stamp, 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 stamp them to death. And it's so so my thinking. I believe this is a, again. There's a whole series of articles on Tetrapod Zoology about forest rakids, which. Uh, Google forest rakids or terror birds, it's easy to spell, and put my name in it. I'll put Tedgebuzz Audio, and you should come to like a whole bunch of articles about these things. Um, yeah, my thinking was that it's more likely that, that that's what it's doing, that it's like kicking or stamping small animals to death. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, um, uh, who is it in the 70s published a whole bunch of things, a whole bunch of articles on these birds? Ah, God, I've forgotten his name. Uh, but it was—it's been suggested for quite a while that even the big ones may may have like smacked things with their robust feet as they were pursuing them. And a—I um, always want to say resistant fit thetero analysis when I mean FEA analysis, FEA finite element analysis, finite element analysis led by. Um, Steve Rowe and colleagues and involving Larry Whitmer and so on has been done on the skull of Andalgalornis which is one of the best known of the forest rakids in terms of brilliant beautiful skull which is in the Naturalist Museum in London really nice this is one of those specimens Kel and Ken which you've mentioned uh, the rostrum is kind of is quite broad relative to the height of the the rostrum whereas other taxa the rostrum is super deep and super narrow and it was always thought that the laterally compressed rostrum was the normal condition. But then when Kellenken was found, Kellenken is not distorted. I think it may be a little bit dorsoventrally compressed. But in the paper on Kellenken, Lewis Kiapi and colleagues say that this indicates that the previous, like, the reconstructions that are based on the laterally compressed ones, they may be unusually distorted. They may be unusually laterally compressed. And uh, at the moment, we aren't really sure like because the skull of, uh, i've looked at the skull of andalgalornis it's fantastic it's it's like a it, a lot of the bone surface is a bit like broken up but it doesn't really look like it's been sandwiched from the side it looks like that's the real condition in life like the 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 eye sockets aren't like distorted or the nostrils aren't either so so i think that some of them were very laterally compressed very deep and i think others like Ken and Ken were less so with more of a yeah uh yeah 
There's so, a really, um, really good picture on Wikipedia of the Andangalornis uh, skull. Is there? So, yeah, it's like a... Well, it's a 3D rendering, but, yeah, so it's done from a CT scan or something. Which will be from the paper I'm kind of mentioning here uh, by Rowe and uh, I can't remember the other authors. Larry Whitmer, I know. But, but they, they showed in that paper... Well, they showed via FEA that... Um, that the ability of the rostrum to withstand stress was limited to certain parts of the rostrum. It's not like it could inf- it's not like it could endure a lot of stress being conducted through like the the hooked bill or something through the bill tip. It had to be quite careful in their their inference was the bird had to be quite careful in how it actually inflicted strikes. So they said that this was this is like a, a very manoeuvrable, presumably quite fast moving bird. They say that it would have to have like deliberately positioned itself to take a to take a bite at like a vulnerable part of whatever prey it was like chomping down on mm. they actually compared it to um oh, they did one of these things i really i really don't like it when scientists do analogies like this but they compared it to like muhammad ali because he's like really ni- really nimble on his feet and able to just do it do like a <laughs> sort of specific specific strike and uh they but the, they, they were definitely saying it wouldn't be like you know wouldn't be like chomping onto the backbone and like gnawing through the backbone. Or yeah, it's not. It's not chomping and holding, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's taking a like a quick strike at something. That's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, but but maybe but maybe that argues that you know maybe they were also like kicking things as well, using their feet and maybe not relying on the the skull as a as a weapon. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. Or maybe well, there's a bit of both. Yeah, a bit different, of both. Different taxa doing. Different I certainly things. Want to, wouldn't want to be bitten by this thing. Yeah. Be, well, that's the be thing. Really par- bad news. Yeah, a parrot can bite off a finger. A big parrot can easily bite off a human finger. So it's easy um, to imagine this almost biting through your arm. I mean, it's yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and having mentioned FEA, we should say that there are always uh, is problems the right word? There's always like issues with FEA. Yeah. It's like FEA is like used as the the thing you're meant to do on fossils and it gives you the answer. No, it doesn't. It gives you a answer and there's actually indications that some of the results of FEA are completely unreliable because they don't take into account soft tissues and all kinds of stuff. But then I know that like the Rowe lab and the Whitman lab, I know they're aware of this. But, yeah. but at the same time, I know other people that are churning out FEA studies and not taking account of this. So, Yes, it's one of these things that has uh, become very trendy for want of a better word and lots of people who know about it you know engineers and and also uh, other people who are seriously into it are questioning whether a lot of these things are anywhere near as robust as they as they seem to be yes i've got uh, yeah there's there's good stories about people that have the fea didn't work because for some reason they didn't get the consistency of the hardness of tissues right so, like, they've got the the bones interacting in their model as the way they should, but, like, the teeth don't behave the way they should. So they have to cheat. They have to put in, like, stops or things. To, but, um... Yes. And and also, there's, like, because FEA is comparatively... Uh, given that it's, you know, digital and involves, like, you know, lots of computer runtime, it's comparatively expensive compared to some other kinds of analysis, which means that people, like, aren't doing the sort of like oldie st- what they consider old style like you know looking at things with microscopes or 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 making models and mashing them together in labs they're not doing any of that kind of stuff they're doing it all through FEA which means that they can't do as much as they did beforehand so there's also cases where people are meant to be studying a whole group 
study the feeding study the feeding behavior of pterosaurs and you can look at all of them but do an fea model when you've got time and funding to do one species yeah so it's like now you might say we get well that's that's we've got a lot more information yeah but you've you actually haven't you've, you're just yeah. doing something that everyone else is doing right now and there's and there are simpler like physical models you can use as well if that's what you're going for you know yeah beam analysis and things like this which are often just as just as good for what you want to get at given the constraints of what we know about fossils um yeah so oh, um, what yeah well, I was just, one more thing on fe i was just going to say i wonder if there's a there must be cases in the past where like a community of researchers went through a phase of using a particular method because it was that's the thing you do that's the darcy thompson grids you don't really see people doing those anymore but there was a time when people like doing all these you know like com- comparing shape change yeah. and thinking that that actually told you something about phylogeny and maybe it does but nowadays it's like uh, can you imagine that people like built that into a funding proposal every single time well, i'm going to produce a darcy thompson grid and yeah. this will require a third of my budget <laughs> it's like for five years down the line it's like people know it's pretty much useless so they don't bother with it anymore i don't know we're just i'm not saying fea is fatally flawed but yeah, well, I've got to say, at, at SVPCA this year, there was there was less FEA than there was, say, five years ago. I think it, it's starting to it's starting to fade out a little bit. Yeah. Anyway, um, what were we talking about? Well, we terabits. Terabits. Yeah. So, so we started off by saying, okay, so summarise <laughs> everything I've just said. So they've got. So general form and function indicates that they're like uh, predators of uh, mammals and reptiles and stuff. Uh, and then uh, there's indications from the limb skeletons of some of them that they were semicosaurial and maybe they were using the feet to kill things. They probably weren't or kill or disable things because birds often eat things while they're still alive. Then they probably weren't scavengers but just because basic rules of ecology, that's kind of, you know, kind of difficult especially if you're living alongside a diversity of like because they're all living in, a, in communities with other predatory birds and uh, predatory mammals uh, carnivorans or metatherians or whatever and then finally we're saying that there's some indication from studies that have been done on the skulls that there's um, an ability to inflict precise but damaging debilitating or fatal wounds and I would say that kind of summarizes everything we think we know about these animals at the moment uh we just don't have like i say we there's there's um, a book by uh gary kaiser and gareth dyke called i think living dinosaurs and it's got a chapter in it by fernando novis and colleagues about terror birds about forest ray kids and i was reading a review of this book by a noted ornithologist who is not a noted ornithologist who whinges all the time about birds not being dinosaurs by another one. And, and he obviously disliked this book very much, partly because it was called Living Dinosaurs. And in his... It was a real annoying, whinging review. And the bit about the Forest Record chapter, this reviewer said, yeah, they don't even, they don't even talk about anything, anything that makes these birds interesting, like, like what sort of egg, eggs they might have laid, or breeding behaviour, or how they, how they might have molted. It's like, what the heck? I don't want to say what I don't want to. Say, well, I'm not going to say what I want to say, but it's like, you silly man! You silly man! Here's here's our stupid, you know, scientists using basing 
saying stuff based on evidence we have and it's like the first thing about these animals is is how frustrating it is that we don't have the data that we'd like to have to inform us through the spectre lifestyle and such so so synthesis yeah yeah okay. <laughs> let's move on so, so thank you anonymous uh, thank you anonymous let's move on to christian jewel's question christian jewel so Christian's question is, do you think that dinosaur behaviour, social interactions, hunting, etc., is sometimes reconstructed, and he's got a little asterisk, which I'll read out in line, in illustrations, documentaries, fiction, or scientific descriptions, as too complex, like that of mammals or birds, considering their brain-to-body mass ratios were generally more in line with those of lizards and crocodiles. Mm-hmm. And Darren has disappeared, Sorry. so I don't think he's going to answer. Yeah, yeah, just that. Bad time. luck, Christian, and <laughs> see you next episode. <laughs> no, 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 I'm still here. Okay, to let, to let an insect out of the house. Um, what do you think? What do you want to say? <sighs> well, that's interesting. I mean, I'm not really sure. I'm because walking with dinosaurs is this what we're talking about? I tend to avoid a lot of documentaries that would include a lot of behaviour, right? And there is some. What, in illustrations? It's hard to see specifically what is being illustrated a lot of the time, so I'm not sure. What do you think? Uh, always trying. I try and keep... I, I always want to say these things as succinctly as possible and don't ramble, don't go off on a tangent, just get straight to the point. And it's hard to do that because there's, there's always so many things that you know, need to set up beforehand. Don't oh, sorry, I will, jump in, I will jump in on <laughs> and say that, that, of course, the lizard and crocodile behavior it can be incredibly complicated so you know what are we actually yeah. talking about here but yeah, yes. yeah 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 so this is this is how i'm going to do this right so people have reconstructed like predatory theropods interacting in complex groups so-called pack hunting they've shown nesting behavior they've shown like pair bonding mated pairs they've shown uh, dinosaurs raising non-bird dinosaurs like mothers and fathers working together looking after hatchlings or chicks whatever you want to call them and feeding them regurgitating food for them they've shown animals uh, you know nibbling one another in grooming uh, um, the, 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 that whole range of behaviours and often they've done this stuff because they have had in mind mammalian analogies and analogues so pack hunting notion of pack hunting people have often pointed to you know wolves and cape hunting dogs and hyenas and lions and uh, and i think that's kind of where a lot of these ideas come from because people are just thinking about animals in general and then the the sort of so that's the pendulum swinging in one way then the pendulum swing back the other way because people say ah but dinosaurs aren't mammals they're reptiles so you've got to look at lizards and crocs and they don't do social behavior they don't nibble one another they don't engage in monogamy they don't feed their babies they don't nest right and then the response to that is no <laughs> yes they do <laughs> so in recent years it's become universally accepted that if you want to look at the behavior of extinct dinosaurs look at the behavior of their closest living relatives so living crocs alligators gharials living birds to an extent lizards and other lepidosaurs uh, and the more we learn it's like basically forget the idea that there's any behaviors that are unique to mammals 
So complex social hunting, group interaction, that's all now known in like, quite a lot of birds interacting socially, birds of prey, ground hornbills, shrikes, corvids. Um, okay, so di- mesozoic dinosaurs weren't necessarily on par with any of those in terms of intelligence, but they're not that far off them. And um, um, then you've got all the social behaviours that have now been reported in uh, crocodilians and lizards and things like fraternal care and play behaviour in lizards and maternal behaviour in turtles and uh, possible feeding of juveniles in crocodiles or, of course, also universal in, well, very nearly universal in birds. So um, th- not all dinosaurs, going back to what, what you said Again, I don't think it was part of the, co- the podcast. We were talking about the idea that, you know, lumping in dinosaurs together is often difficult because it's such a broad range of animals. Obviously, what goes for one group of dinosaurs isn't going to go for all of them. What works for sauropods isn't going to work for bird-like theropods or hadrosaurs or whatever. But as a generalization, I don't think, I actually don't think that any of the behaviors that have been depicted in art or fiction, well, no, forget what I said about fiction. Mm. But the stuff depicted in the in the broadest interpretation of the scientific literature, as in you know illustrations in kids' books and stuff, the broadest inter- and and walking with dinosaurs or whatever, all the behaviours that have been depicted for mesozoic dinosaurs are kind of plausible, mostly plausible in terms of what we now know for birds and crocs and lizards, because they've all turned out to be far more complex than than um, assumption would would have it. So and like monitor lizards, I don't know how well monitor lizards compare in terms of like brain size and complexity to bird-like dinosaurs, but I would guess that probably the bird-like dinosaurs are probably brainier, probably more complex than, than reptiles like monitor lizards. And reptiles like monitor lizards and iguanas and some other lizards are comparatively smart animals and capable of lots of sophisticated bits of behaviour. Play behavior, social bonding, pair bonding, care of juveniles, construction of complicated um, so uh, place, ref, sites of refuge, and, and and all sorts of stuff like that. So um, yeah, so, yeah. Well, I, so so sorry. Just one last thing. So when I said I didn't want to talk about fiction, that's because I think the only case it's gone off the rails is is in graphic novels like the Age of Reptiles cartoons and in things like Jurassic Park where you have got animals basically behaving anthropomorphically. But that's because that's pure fiction. You could say that, you know, because there are also graphic... There's a graphic novel... I think it's, there's a graphic novel called Pride of Baghdad, which is about a, uh, a family of lions that are abandoned in a zoo during, like, the Iraq War. And and The Lion King. Yeah, The yeah. Lion King. It's like, <laughs> think about... There's, there's all kinds of fiction. And the book Philidae by the author with the unpronounceable surname, which has been made into a movie as well. Watership uh, down, watership down, in which rabbits have got religion and justice, and they feared the what's he called the black rabbit of death. Um, yeah, yeah. So, so, and so people have wind in the willows. Pro- <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I don't think we need to include fiction as our in our um, remit yeah. here. Um, right. Yeah. Also, this. Um, Brain-to-body mass ratios. This is a massively problematic thing, I think. Because, just think about it, why does the body make a much difference to the cognitive power of a brain? And it's not at all clear, 
and I don't think that there's been the study so far to demonstrate there's um, intelligence to brain size versus body size ratio um, mm. to show that this is actually what's going on, right? Mm-hmm. Because I would expect that just absolutely larger brains can are uh, cognitively more complex. So dinosaurs, often being quite large, have absolutely large brains. Yes, they've got big bodies to go along with that, but I would expect a hadrosaur with a relatively large brain compared to a, I don't know, even a monitor lizard, right, is going to be... It's possible. As I say, I don't think that there's there's all that much work on this, and I could be wrong, and, you know, listeners will probably come back with something, but um, or you will, but I, I, I'm just very sceptical of this brain size to body size ratio meaning very much. Yeah, no, I am too. I, I, I'm sure I've said something along those lines before. Um, yeah, I think we've talked about it before. So yeah, We've talked about it before. There, but dinosaurs there's... being absolutely large will have absolutely large brains, therefore we don't really know what that... Uh, they could be more intelligent, We just, but we don't really know. We don't know what this stuff means yet. We we definitely have covered this at some in some way because I had said that um, we were talking about proportional brain size in animals because the 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 animals with the, the animals with the biggest brains in relation to the whole body size you, you would generally think that it's humans I think that's I'm crying out loud what's happened Jesus. <laughs> Your brain has your brain has shrunk, or you're My getting brain. fatter, so you're getting stupider. <laughs> um, it's right. It's definitely said somewhere in the literature that like humans got the biggest brains of anything, but that's absolutely not true. There's like we mentioned some of the domestic dogs that have got really huge brains, like really swell-headed little breeds, and then there are there are insects and fish with proportionally bigger brains than people. Like there are wasps with huge brains, apparently, and elephant-nosed morimus fish have got the biggest brains, apparently, the biggest brains of anything, proportional to their size. Are they super smart, novel-writing fish? No. no. They're, they're electricity-generating fish that have, like, have a particularly sophisticated sensory interaction with their, each other and with their environment. And there's, there's so, so pure brain size. And there's animals that have got relatively small brains that, you, that are able to um, perform things that you, in the looser sense, would regard as, as intelligent acts. You know, they, they, they learn quite quickly. They recognize individuals quickly. They have complex social lives. Like crocs. Crocodiles do not have proportionally big brains, but they rank pretty well in terms of like, their ability to perform behaviors that we regard as, in quotes, intelligent. Mm. Social behavior, complexity, learning. Um, now, crocs, being relatively large animals, will have absolutely large brains. Yeah, compared yeah. to other animals, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. So, so there's this. So, yes, this idea. So, I would say those fish. I don't know anything about the wasps, but those fish and crocs and some other things. They demonstrate that a simple idea that a brain size to body size ratio isn't isn't the magic answer. Of course, the problem with the fossils again, we're coming back to that constraint about like, what information we have because. In order to know how uh, you know how a brain actually works, you need the thing, and there's a lot of things about brain anatomy that you can only know if you've got a soft one, like the density of the circuitry within it, for example, how complex the brain actually is. We've got a really rough idea of what that might be like in fossil animals, but normally it's just inference based on 
you know, superficial details of bony anatomy or inferences made from extant animals. But we don't know stuff about, like, neuron density or, you know, stuff like that, stuff that makes a difference to animals' ability to uh, perform and recall details and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, so that's the answer. It's plausible because we know so very little about any of this <laughs> any of this stuff. Well, and, well, it's plausible also because we do know of um modern uh, relatively small-brained animals that do engage in complex social behavior. Yep. Um, although, as I was saying, relatively small-brained, relative to their body size, and it would be interesting just to look at absolute brain size um, correlated with behaviour. I think that would be an interesting thing to look at, although I, I should imagine there's lots of relatively small birds and lizards that do some complicated stuff, aren't there? Certainly well, parrot, parrot brains aren't absolutely large. <clears throat> uh, well, mm, mm. They are, well, they kind of are. I mean, Yeah, compared to a mouse... For example, yeah. Maybe. Well, if it's a big, if it's a big parrot, if it's a if parrot, it's a big parrot big, yeah. <laughs> the brain is going to be, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think that might be the thing to look at. It's actually an even simpler idea. It's just absolute brain size is a might tell you more than relative to body size. So some of the dinosaur books cover this. They say that look, the brain of Tyrannosaurus is the size of a human brain right? is the is the size of well it's actually a gorilla is the is the thing they go for okay. but that's the whole mass of the entire brain which includes like the olfactory yep. uh, olfactory lobes and the olfactory the, the thing that leads up to the olfactory bulbs and the yeah all the brain stem as well as the cerebellum and such so um but yeah obviously sentry a specialized sensory apparatus can take up a huge amount of brain space right Mm. Um, so if something's doing something unusually uh, with, unusual with its sensory apparatus, then yeah. So I yeah. would say that we have kind of answered Christian's question. I would say that if in fiction you see dinosaurs picking a lock, or playing Scrabble, or something, then well, that's fiction and that's not likely to be viable. But the idea of of Mesozoic dinosaurs having complex social behaviours and and group hunting and extensive parental care complex parental care I would say don't worry too much about the analogies the, the similarity with you know the idea that they're mammal like is based on what we now know based on what we're learning about lizards and crocs and snakes and, and uh, to a degree even I'm not going to say fish again um, but um, uh, turtles, uh, then, because because um, turtle parental care has recently been uh, published. The, uh, there's there's a group of turtles where the the mothers it's one of the South American pleuridae. The mothers hang around. I think it's the South American river turtle. Uh, what's that? Pelusius? No, that's the helmet African helmeted turtle. Podonemus? Whatever. The mother hangs around the nest. The babies hatch, and the mother made little squeaking noises, and the babies followed her, and the babies migrated in the same place that the mother did. So, it's, uh, yeah. I, I, th- I think, so bottom line, yeah, is all the stuff, the, the diversity of things that we now see in, 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 in reptiles and birds, or, or reptiles including birds, however you want to say it, mm. uh, yeah, it's more or less, more or less anything goes, so long as it doesn't look really stupid and is clearly done 
you know, over-the-top anthropomorphic stuff. Or <laughs> The TV series Dinosaurs, what's it called, Dinosaurs of North America, or When Dinosaurs Roamed North America, really bad CG stuff. They've got, they've got things in there where, um, now what is it, there's one particularly stupid scene where like two different, two different theropods like team up. Uh, and they don't team up in a way that you would regard as plausible because we do know of, we know of what's called multi-species alliances where different groups of animals, there's like, you know, there's like mongooses and antelopes that are on the forest floor. There's squirrels and monkeys at mid canopy and there's monkeys at top canopy and all those species are communicating and telling each other where the predators are and stuff. We know of things like that and we know of cases where like, you know, a coyote and an American badger cooperate for a what for a time to to hunt things but um i seem to remember the behavior in this being particularly uh, amusing mm. uh, and it's a, a like ridiculously anthropomorphic two predators eye each other across the room shall we gang up <laughs> <laughs> yeah I, I don't i don't watch dinosaur documentaries for this very reason <laughs> <laughs> have you you've seen all the walking with dinosaurs stuff I've seen the original series, um, and I saw the Big Owl one, but there are other things I haven't seen, right? you never seen the movie, Walking with Dinosaurs, the 3D movie? No. Yeah. Didn't we... Did we spoke... We, we didn't, didn't we spoke about this? We, we did, did, we did like, spoke about it, yeah. We did done speak about it. Yeah, we did spoke good about it. Um, I can't remember what I said. I'll have to go back and listen, because... Because... Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Such other. <laughs> so here we are. Everybody, the whole world has been changed because of this amazing Walking with Dinosaurs movie. No, <laughs> it sank without a trace. I think five people saw it. Because uh, you know that I've told you there were loads of. Uh, did I mention all the um, the tourism tie-ins? The Isle of Wights. They like, pulled this huge, did this like enormous kind of. Uh, yeah. come to Dinosaur Island and find your own dinosaur and walking with dinosaurs the movie is everywhere everyone loves it and it's like no it didn't make a bit of difference to yeah. how people came to the Isle of Wight and... no well it wasn't a it wasn't a culture changer I don't really that... know why they thought it would be it seems a bit risky partly uh, yeah you're, that that's true yeah don't know why it would be but, but partly it was on the back of Vecti Draco so this is an- this is another thing where I have a, a a misplaced sense of indignation. So so me, somebody who has not a bean to my name, no money whatsoever, and can't bloody get any, despite working myself to death, I publish a little pterosaur found by a young girl. She was four when she found it, and then the media goes that these people involved in tourism say, "Oh wow, we can tell other people they can if they come to the island, their four year old kids will get things named after them as well." So then. These, you know, these corporate fat cats <laughs> throw all this money into Damn those fat cats. Yeah. What do I get out of it, huh? Where's my money? Where's my money? Yeah? Where's your parade? <laughs> Where's the money? <laughs> <laughs> this inanimate carbon rod. <laughs> <laughs> mm. <laughs> okay, let's wrap this thing up then, huh? Right. Yay. <laughs> Yay, you're so sick of this. Let's put this puppy to bed. <laughs> well, this is... Uh, well. I, I don't know. This won't be apparent, but we've done one one straight after the other. Haven't, well, not straight after the other, but we did. We, we recorded episode thirty one yesterday, and we're recording episode thirty two today, obviously, because I'm talking now, and I was saying yesterday. But anyway, yeah. So we've done 
one a day, which is unusual. Yeah, that's why we've got nothing to talk about. Yeah, which and is why we've only run to nearly two hours. <laughs> You're kidding! Oh my god, it's like lunchtime. Yeah. Okay, uh, you know what we didn't mention in the previous episode and which we really should have done? What's that? T-shirts. Mm. Yes. Now, thank you to people who have gone to our respective Redbubble shops. There's a Redbubble Tetsu shop where you can... Tetsu podcast shop. <laughs> Let's do the podcast one first because that's... So you go to Redbubble and it's like, what, Tetsu podcast? No, it's slash... So Redbubble dot com slash people which is how they get to um separate individuals from corporations i don't i don't know it's not it's just how they get to the accounts it's really dumb because corporations are people too darren and ah, the um, corporations well they're all tetra, corporation-y. tetrapod cats tetrapod, tetrapod cats so um, thank you to the people that have that have bought tetrapod cats tetsu podcast t-shirts and um hoodies and vests and underwear yeah. and have worn it on the set of movies and music videos and photographs taken in the park and the beach and stuff we're going to like produce a big sort of compilation of this at some stage and there's also a Tetsu Redbubble shop which I'm sure you'll be able to find and I've mentioned which it which is on slash te- people to slash Tetsu right so there's oh, what have I done like, I've done like five t-shirt designs so far feathered dinosaurs and Smart ass comments about like beds of dinosaurs, you idiots, that kind of stuff. Yeah, uh, what primates and that, so so. And, a, and if, it's a smart ass shop, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, if anybody can think <laughs> of t shirts for smart asses. The next one is going to be rodents, and it's going to have a rodent <laughs> montage, and it's going to say, "I work on rodents, <laughs> deal with it," or something along those lines. But then I thought probably one person will buy that. <laughs> one person who works on rodents. Um, rodents yeah um so t-shirts thank you to people who buy t-shirts you know it helps um uh if you're interested in any of the stuff we talk about or any of the stuff written about tetrapods or you might be interested in the books that john and i have published we've written a book called all yesterday's co-authored with our good friend memo kozman currently available from lulu yeah go to a regular irregular books irregular books to see where it's for sale yes also available from Amazon and other good and bad digital retailers. We also published a book on the science and speculation involved in cryptozoology titled The Cryptozoological Volume 1, Volume 2 is soon to appear. Uh, there's Tetrapodzoology Facebook page, which is definitely going like because that makes all the difference to my life. And I currently tweet at... There's still a chance to save Han! I'm the East Platform! Chewy! I'm terribly sorry about all this. After all, he's only a Wookiee. At Tetsu. And I think that's it for me. All right. I'm at johnconway.co with links to my Twitters and Facebooks. Uh, Nike to Terrace on Facebook. Nick to Terrace. Nike to Terrace on Facebook and Twitter, actually. I've got to change that. I want to change that to something else. But yeah, you I said that in episode nine. Can't think. <laughs> episode <laughs> nine. <laughs> Yeah. I thought about the John Conway. Maybe we'll do that. <laughs> when anyway. you, yeah, John Conway, when you Google John Conway, isn't he like a musician or something? No, he's a mathematician. Game of Life. Very famous John Conway. Huh. Um, there's actually you. two famous... We've talked about this several times. There's two famous mathematicians. John, ah, John Horton Conway. 
John Horton Conway. And there's another famous John Conway mathematician. It's really annoying. Professor John Conway at the University of Southampton. Professor of Inhalation Science. <laughs> <laughs> See, <laughs> John Conway is just... A, no, it's too too common. John Conway's parents were Agnes Boyce and Cyril Horton Conway. John had two older sisters, Sylvia and Joan. That doesn't sound like me. No. Nope. Where are you getting this from? Uh, Google. Destroyer anyway, of I'm number two on Google. I'm Google at the moment. John Conway's number are, two. so you are. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. yeah. So That's all I've got to do is beat that other John Horton Conway. And I'm the winner. I didn't know your middle name was Horton. It, it's not Horton. We've been watching the movie Horton Hears a Who quite a lot lately. Have you? Yeah. It's is pretty it? good apart from Jim Carrey. Yeah. Hey, Jim Carrey. Take that, Jim Carrey. <laughs> <laughs> we should stop if, there. If you do listen to this podcast. <laughs> we should stop there, I think.